Warp particles. If we saturate the event horizon with warp particles, we might be able to see them escaping through the rupture we made when we entered. Welcome to another episode of Delta Flyer. I'm Thad Hate. I'm Stuart Hollis. And with us this week, we have a special guest. Uh, yeah, I'm Ben Nielsen. Thanks for having me tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. We're glad to have you. So this week, we're going to talk about Parallax, which is the second aired episode, technically the third episode, if you count Caretaker as two. I mean, I, I don't. They, they all air together on Netflix as one, so... It Netflix feels like a the... pretty long two. <laughs> yeah. Netflix is the real truth. Mm, okay, I guess. So our synopsis from TV Guide... Voyager is contacted by a ship trapped on the event horizon of a collapsed star that, on closer examination, turns out to be Voyager itself. I mean, yeah, that's accurate. But kind of gave it away. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Memory Alpha is much better on that. It says, investigating an apparent distress call, Voyager becomes trapped inside the event horizon of a quantum singularity. Hmm. Okay, so let's start off by, say, by asking uh, Ben... Uh, yes. Are you a Star Trek fan? Are you familiar with Voyager, etc.? I've never seen anything but parallel. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I I did not see it as a as a kid growing up at all. But I think at some point after college, um, it was all on Netflix, and so I just sort of dove in. Um, actually, uh, uh, started off more as a, a Stargate fan. Woo. Um, but uh, yeah, basically watched them all all through, starting with sort of TNG and then Deep Space Nine and then Voyager, um, and realized that if I would have had uh, Captain Janeway in my life as a child, it probably would have been better off, um, but uh, better late than never. I had Captain Janeway in my life as a child, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I caught them as they were originally airing, um, and thought I had seen all of them until I actually sat down and did a full proper watch through uh, five, eight years ago, uh, a while ago, and realized, oh no, oops, I've only actually seen a third of them. Uh, a lot of episodes. Yes, I think I, like uh, Berman and most of uh, CBS Paramount, was a little fatigued by the end of Voyager, um, but have been mostly going back and watching them because they're always on BBC America. Uh, an, and so it's nice to to watch, although it's mostly just uh, Dreadnought and uh, Fury, but occasionally there are some other ones in there, too. Well, you know, one out of two isn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> Not a fan of Fury. <sighs> we could do without. Yeah. I mean, Kess had been gone at this point. Couldn't she just stay that way? Yeah, or just come back in any way that's meaningful or helpful and not right. insulting to the actress who was asked to leave. But I think today we're talking about Parallax. <laughs> that's true. Very well. Very, And Kess is in this one, but not really. I mean, she has... She, uh, this, is, this is a very Kess-light episode, I should say. Yeah, she well, talks I mean, to the doctor, she gets dirt. It's the whole thing. I mean, she's certainly in it more than Neelix is. Hmm. Yeah. Neelix makes himself known, though, in his scene. As is his want. Yeah, I mean, d does Neelix ever not make himself known? <laughs> so I tend to wonder how much of his sort of 
braggadocious nature is just fluff to like not get airlocked from the ship. Because if he's making a soup that's known 12 sectors away, that can't possibly be real, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, probably not. Uh, but that leads us to our next very important question. Um, <laughs> who's your least favorite character and why is it Neelix? Oh... You just set it up that way. Um, I don't know, because this is the reality of my voyage, with Voyager, as it were, is that there are some really high highs when it comes to characters, mm-hmm. and there's some significant lows when it comes to characters. And so I think I don't hate with the sort of Jar Jar Binksian fury uh, Netflix, or, uh, Neelix that, that most people do, but um, he's definitely down there in the in the bottom of um, tolerable characters. I think I don't like Paris and Kim just because they remind me of every sort of average person I've ever met. But um, why is it Neelix? Uh, that dumb hat. <laughs> the reason. <laughs> I forgot about the hat. That hat, he won't get rid of it. Horrible. I was hoping in like Year of Hell, the hat just goes away in some dramatic fashion, but I think it's still around, unfortunately. Well, because Year of Hell gets reset at the end. Yeah, so the hat just the hat can't go away. Yeah. (laughs) I I remember when when I was coming up watching it the first time around. Actually, I actually enjoyed Neelix. he reminded me a lot of, um, I grew up Catholic and he, his voice in particular reminded me a lot of one of the priests that we had at the church. <laughs> uh, and he was like one of like the cool priests. So it was like, Oh, okay. Neil, like he's a cool guy. Um, I think that may be the first time anyone has ever said that. Which <laughs> Neelix, Neelix, he's a, a cool, cool guy. guy. Oh, yeah. Or that he reminds you of a cool priest. <laughs> <laughs> Probably both. <laughs> My favorite priest had a bunch of spots on his head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so let's talk about this episode. Yeah, Jane and Bellana's Technobabble Adventure, I think, right? Season 1, uh, yes. episode 3. Yeah, so, Stuart, do you remember this episode at all? Uh, I, I didn't at the beginning, but bits and pieces filtering back in as I was watching uh where as soon as they were trapped i was like oh okay that's them they're looking at them and when they when balada was giving her you're trapped on the ice analogy like that i remembered that uh but not it wasn't until she was saying it, it was it was a conversation remembered not uh yeah i, I didn't remember any of it ahead of time it was just, as it was happening it's like oh yeah, yeah 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 i remember it kind of like i definitely remembered like, from when I was a kid, from first watching it, I remembered the Bolana drama, where she beat up Carrie, and then there was the argument between Chakotay and Janeway about whether or not Bolana could be the chief engineer. I remember that from when I was, from the very first time I watched it. And then I remember that the, the parallel stuff from the from when I rewatched it later as an adult, but I didn't remember that from from when I was a kid. I guess the I guess uh, Torres, you know, punching Carrie in the nose was more interesting. Sure. Uh, ben, did you remember this episode at all going into it? Uh, I did only because I think I saw this episode in about 2015 for the first time, and honestly, the parts that I remember are just that I found it really cool. 
because again in 2015 so i found it really cool that in like 1995 basically all your male characters are superfluous in the episode um because it's basically just janeway and torres geeking out about how cool and sciencey they are um and i do happen to uh, typically remember an episode by any janeway put downs that are particularly memorable and at one point I believe uh, Paris tries to understand what's happening and goes, uh, am I making any sense here? And Janeway just sort of leans in and goes, nope, but that's okay. Am I making any sense here? No, but that's okay. And I do remember that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I realize that I phrased that question earlier, but I'm definitely with you that Tom Paris is, boy... Tom Paris. He just he just is. I think I have a problem with him because he reminds me of Jordy, except that Jordy when he was being like off, like wouldn't like he would be told that he's being off or being weird with like, you know, Brahms or somebody, but I feel like Paris is supposed to always win, and so he's kind of just a blob that's there, but he always somehow saves the day, and I can't that's the part that gets me, is that he's somehow right, even though he just sort of seems to be stumbling along. He's Jordy with confidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very true. But did you notice him approaching Cass at, well, not warp speed? She must not have been in visual range. Right. When, when Neelix and Cass try to get in on the, on the senior staff meeting. I believe he gives up his seat? He, he does, which... And anyone other than Tom Paris would be just, oh, well, you're an officer and a gentleman. Both Tom Paris is like, oh, you're setting up a like a date or something. <laughs> yeah. You are an ensign and not a gentleman. Yes. So, yeah, the Paris is just... As a kid, it, 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 I had no problem with Paris. But yes, looking back at this as an adult with 21st century sensibilities, dude's creepy. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, totally. Or Towards the end there where he's saying... Well, it sounds like you're going to need your best pilot, and that's me. And Chainway's like, you're sweet. <laughs> but what we actually need is someone who knows what they're doing when it comes to temporal anomalies. You'll need the best pilot you've got in that shuttle, Captain. That'll be me. Getting there is the easy part, Mr. Paris. We need someone who's familiar with the finer points of temporal mechanics. And unless you've been hiding your credentials, I don't think that's you. Which, uh, again, anytime Janeway can throw in something where she's... Uh, Kate Mulgrew, the actress, is winking at the camera through Kate uh, Janeway, the character, is, is a fa- favorite of mine. So I I think, by like by far, uh, Voyager is the show with the most shade thrown by act- by characters. <laughs> Especially when you, add in, when you add in the stuff that Janeway says, Paris sometimes has a few zingers himself, Tuvok... The Doctor, they're just, yeah, they're just always sniping at each other, and it's amazing. I just feel like with Tom Paris, that with the rest of the, with the rest of the people that you mentioned, they're, they're doing, you know, they're, they're, they're sniping, or they're throwing their zinger, or they're being sassy, and it's always done where they're not overtly winking at the camera like Tom Paris seems to. Oh, yeah. Tom Paris has a Jimmy Fallon-like delivery. (laughs) (laughs) okay so what uh what stuck out to everybody about this episode so this is one episode that covers the 
integration of the Maquis with the Federation, with the Starfleet crew. And it's pretty much the only episode. We get a little bit of it in learning curve at the end of the season. But for the most part, it's just, we have a couple growing pains in the second episode, and then boom, no more. So I I do recall that, and it sticks out at me because it's notable, because they don't really have any more growing pains after this, which is another thing that is not how things would have been if the show aired today. Right. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that is set up and so it was interesting for me you know having watched caretaker beforehand as well that there are just things that seem pretty important that don't really get started until this one um you know this is the introduction of of seska uh into into the storyline i believe and she's in science blue that was a mistake according to memory alpha yeah uh that i liked um there's definitely a lot of like the, the hydroponics bay, we're going to mm-hmm. change that into something because we need food and, you know, we're going to cut off a deck and so it's going to be you know, complicated. Um, and there's just a lot of cool setup for um, things that work really well, like Bellana being, you know, difficult but incredibly competent. Um, and then some things that don't necessarily pan out in the way that maybe fans would want them to, like the McKee. Um, you know, Bellana punched a guy in the nose to the point where she could have, like, killed him. <laughs> And then at the end of the episode, they're shaking hands. And that's yeah. Starfleet, but that's not necessarily, I guess, how a modern audience would, would want to see progression on a show. Yeah, it should have taken at least a season for them to integrate. Well, I think that something that's, that jumped out at me was that the numbers kept not adding up. Like, <laughs> in the senior staff meeting, they're saying that engine efficiency is down another 14%. I mean what they've already lost who knows but that seems like a lot for having only been in the delta quadrant for i mean let's be generous let's call it a month but uh that seems bad um the doctor is shrinking at a rate of five centimeters per hour but in the three minutes he's talking to kess he shrinks 10 centimeters and then later it's as you can see i've shrunk another 68 centimeters but then janeway says that's our hail from nine hours ago yeah they're saying that this the Illidarian system is three light years away, and Jamie says, full impulse. That would take forever. It mm-hmm. would take forever, uh, because full impulse is only one quarter of the speed of light. <laughs> so, okay, it wouldn't take forever. It would only take 12 years. Right. Yeah, it, it just... It, odd that... Yeah, that it was like... And not just saying lay in a court warp seven whatever but just like a lot of numbers being thrown around as they always are but in this case for some reason they were jumping out at me and it's like hold on a second you're actually giving us like concrete stuff like five centimeters per hour but it's not adding up do we presume because it was a time dilation specific episode one of the because actually one of the (laughs) One of the uh, surprise not um, sort of uh, story buys um, and teleplay was Brian and Braga. Um, do we feel like he was just like, oh, you know, guys, it's a time displacement. It's fine. Or do we think they just didn't care? Yeah, I believe either one from Braga, really. <laughs> I was I, mean, I, I was going to lean towards did, straight up didn't care. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. So let's just throw some numbers at why not? Whatever. Yeah. It is a type 4 quantum singularity. What do you think a type 3 singularity looks like? Is it red? <laughs> I don't think it's a 
I feel like it'd be more of like a size or severity thing. Like in a type mm. three singularity, you know, they they definitely would only have been trapped if they had gotten a little bit closer. Yeah. So you think it's like a category five storm? Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, that makes sense. But I feel like by saying type, that would seem to eh. I guess type and category are the same thing though. Or similar. Well, because we kind of only have like one type of hurricane, but different categories thereof. So, no, you're right. Perhaps a type three is shaped like a spoon. (laughs) (laughs) They do encounter a lot of quantum singularities in Star Trek. It's one of those things where I have to wonder if it's because the Delta Quadrant is uncharted in Starfleet, and maybe quantum singularities really are every like 22 and a half light years apart in the Alpha Quadrant, but they're all mapped, so they never accidentally run into one. Except they still do. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> space is big. Space is big. Yeah, You would not believe how freakishly big space <laughs> is. So, speaking of the singularity and the event horizon, <laughs> at the very end of the episode, when Janeway is like, sometimes you just have to push through. I feel like that had almost as much chance of destroying the ship as it did for them <laughs> actually to, to escape. The look on Paris's face would lead me to believe as well. And while, you know, Panchet, Mr. Paris, is great, I don't necessarily know if that was exactly the, the command strategy or more just like, yeah, let's just give it a try. <laughs> yeah. And the alternative was nine more hours and the ship is crushed, so... There was no time. Just yeah. nine hours. Yeah, the doctor would have shrunk an indeterminate number of centimeters more. <laughs> yeah. It was weird that like it was only his height that was that was decreasing. Like none of his other parameters were, so he just kept Except eventually it was his other parameters. Because like when he's standing on the chair and he's the size of a Barbie doll, he is not still the same width he was when he started. Oh yeah, no no I Oh man, how did I how did I miss that all together? I was thinking of like the the previous two or three times where he was on comps with somebody, and he's just still regular width, but just increasingly shorter. Yeah, well, that's how it was for a while, and then apparently it stopped doing that. Yeah, can't believe I forgot about Barbie Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might get some better stuff. I say stick around. He might get some better stuff than Barbie Doctor. <laughs> yeah. I liked his. I did like his exchange with Cass when Cass is like, "You're very sensitive," and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah." That 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 whole scene was good. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this is the because we are recording this with a special guest. We have actually already recorded our one for the next episode. Time and again. Time and again. <laughs> time and again. This I think is my favorite of the ones we've seen. Caretaker, Parallax, and Time and Again. I think I like this one the best. Yeah, this one's pretty good. You know, we have the intra the intra crew conflict. We have Jacotay kind of squaring off with Janeway a, a little bit, you know, beca- behind closed doors, but also on the bridge when he's calling out when he's calling on Balana to provide the solution. I have a I have a thought on that too. But then when he runs into Seska and you know Maki dissident number three in the hallway, <laughs> that was Maki dissident number five. Thank you very much. And it's. Like, hey, you know, uh, if you want to overthrow the ship, uh, we're right behind you. What? What? No. What? No. (laughs) We just want you to know that if things do get out of hand, we're ready to back you. What does that mean? In case you want to take control of the ship, you have our full support. 
If I ever hear you talk that way again, I'll personally throw you in the brig for mutiny. <laughs> so, you mentioned Chicote calling down to Torres when they're on the bridge. So, they had just encountered this singularity at this point. Like, just pulled up to it. And they're talking about it on the bridge, and then Chicote calls down to engineering and talks to Torres as, as if she were part of the conversation the whole time. Are they just, like, in engineering, are they just, like, hanging out, watching a, watching the people on the bridge on the monitor the whole time or something? Maybe they pipe it in, and it's it's their version of just listening to NPR while they're doing their work. They just <laughs> listen to the ambient bridge noises. Just in case. Just in case. Oh, Paris is hitting on someone else again. Yeah, I was about to say, so, so just a lot of... Paris trying to convince Harry Kim to stop being a, a stick in the mud and Harry Kim be like, no, I need to worry about my astrogation. And then Tuvok raising an eyebrow and thinking of something clever as a put down. Do you think the computer translates that? Like, in engineering, you'll hear uh, like you'll hear Major Barrett's voice saying, Commander Tuvok raises his eyebrow. <laughs> no, I bet you can hear that over comms without the... That's fair. Tuvok sighing can be heard across all decks. <laughs> comms or no <laughs> speaking of that's how I knew that I would like Tuvok is that he has Vulcan Shade down to a remarkable degree which is a, a, a occasionally don't get it quite right with Vulcans occasionally do get it right with Vulcans and I think with Tuvok they got it right I feel like Tuvok does it better than Spock even I would agree blasphemy but I would agree I'm the I'm the outsider who has never really watched the original series, so my only experience with Spock is in the movies. Having just spent more time with Tuvok, then I also agree, but I'm like the least qualified to agree. I think we can all agree Tuvok is better than T'Pol. Yeah, and I think mostly, and this is one that's always really bugged me with Enterprise, having, full disclosure, only seen the last two seasons fully and a couple from the, the first two seasons, is that... Um, Tuvok and Spock um, and Sarek are sort of punching in their own weight class mm -hmm. when they go at it with other people like Bones or you know Janeway or, or Chakotay or anything. But T'Pol is completely naive to Archer just being openly anti-Vulcan or yeah. you know them just trying to make her be human. So I think that's where Tuvok is uh, more fun for me because he'll know exactly what to say to put you down quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, for example... I will never cease to be amazed by the human capacity for hyperbole. Yes. I love that line. <laughs> it just walks away from a stunned Kim. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty much everything Tuvok ever says to Neelix. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so something I wanted to touch on was that when, when they were in the meeting room before Neelix and Kess uh, nosed their way in, the captain is asking, "Well, what about alternative energy sources?" And I'm just thinking, "Are we going to put like a like a like a big old windmill on, on top of Voyager, <laughs> like a solar sail or something?" It's I, just, just covered the, in solar panels. Yeah, the 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 energy sources in the Star Trek shows are always kind of confounding to me because our closest analog would be something like a like an aircraft carrier or or a submarine. And ours are all nuclear-powered. They never have to refuel. Okay, that's not true. They only have to refuel every 50 years. It, it's like... They have effectively infinite energy, and it's odd when we're on something like this, and it's like, oh, well, we're just running out of fuel. How? Why? How? <laughs> well, this is a problem with a lot 
of Trek, and actually, um, Madhusadia did the book Trekonomics and tries valiantly to figure out what's going on here and doesn't necessarily come to a, a great place. But I always, I guess, wondered when there were moments like we can't do, like we can't do, we need to do rations because we can't do replicators, but we have a warp drive, but dilithium crystals are a finite amount. And so where do we get those? And I never, never fully understood exactly what was up with that. But I think yeah. it's a bit of a, um, we need to make things seem dire. And then much like the, the often mocked, you know, torpedoes, I think they just sort of <laughs> jet- jettison those whenever needed. Because they often, they spend a lot of time in Fairhaven. So you've seen that YouTube video? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, put, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> If you're going to put uh, another video in the show notes, you should definitely do some kind of. Oh, yeah, I caught that too. There was a some kind of this episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, it wasn't some kind of leather jacket, which is the best, but there was definitely a some kind of. Also, the doctor says 47 twice. Ooh, nice. Nice pickup. Wait, what, what's 47? Okay, so there's a thing at one of the colleges. I don't know which college it is off the top of my head. Uh, oh, no, we've talked about this. The 47 Society. Yes. Something. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pomona College, yeah. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I'm reading it off Alpha <laughs> Memory Alpha. That, I'll take their word for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the 47 Society, which claims there exists a mathematical proof that all numbers are equal to 47. And so they're all over the place. Yeah, and you see it in Star Trek all the time. Yeah, that's a strange one. So, do we know how many Maquis are on the ship? I want to say we do. I think we do as well. And I'm willing to bet Memory Alpha knows, but I'm not sure how to search for that. (laughs) Okay. I'm just wondering, I I mean, you know, future knowledge, they do eventually do this. But I'm just wondering how the... A, how many could possibly have been crammed onto that little Maquis ship in the first place? And B... Okay. Yeah. So, at least 13 people died on Voyager going to the Delta Quadrant. Voyager has a complement of 100... Voyager, when, you know, going out from... An Intrepid-class starship, I should say, has a crew complement of 150 people. So, uh, uh, what... People who've done the math say there should be... So, from out of the... And one quarter of the crew is Maquis. So out of the approximately 140 to 150 people that are on the ship, there should be at least 32 Maquis. How the heck were that that many Maquis on that little Maquis ship? Yeah, those Peregrine-class fighters like really only have room for like three people. But anyway. <laughs> I think Janeway would have been impressed with that quick math. Get this man to engineering. <laughs> <laughs> and let him displace an officer who's worked for decades to get there. <laughs> yeah, like it, it really bothered me that Carrie was just like, "Okay, Golana's my boss now." Sounds good. Yeah. Well, so at one point when they had to shut down the the tractor beam, and Carrie says, oh, "I can do it, but I'll have to go into the conduit and disconnect it directly." A, I wasn't sure why he was phrasing it as if he was looking for permission and not just uh, how it was phrased was odd. And B, because I didn't remember the episode perfectly, I was half expecting him to get blown up, and then Bolana getting a, like a field promotion to chief engineer at that moment. Well, a bit of a wharf moment. No yeah, just yeah, just just neatly solving the whole 
succession problem. It's like, oh, okay, well, Carrie got blown up. Well, to be fair, Carrie is never, like, super important after this. He does appear in other episodes, um, but he never becomes, like, a critical character. Well, he's critical of Bellana, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that also brings me to sort of my biggest like good takeaway of this episode and the thing that is always the core of my favorite for voyager is that there is this significant emphasis on excellence and doing the you know put quotes around it right thing and i think we see that a lot in terms of how janeway is establishing herself as a captain in this episode you know there's a lot of taking the time and energy to really get each individual crew member to sort of do their best um, and those are always my personal favorite episodes. Um, mm-hmm. And so when, you know, having her in the um, shuttlecraft with uh, Bellana talking about how there was a commendation from a professor and, you know, uh, you know, some people like to be challenged and some captains like to be challenged. I thought that was great and reminds me why she's my favorite captain. I loved the moment when they were geeking out in the conference room. I just thought that was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was trying to imagine any other captain that we've seen doing that and just no. yeah, yeah could you ever imagine picard being even slightly like that or kirk <laughs> or kirk yeah this is my lifelong sort of defense of, of janeway from others and why she's my favorite captain is that with with kirk we have an entire episode where he's left alone on the ship and all he can do is sort of sit there and not do anything in his you know command chair and then if picard has a problem tells jordy to fix it and then asks him when it's done janeway has a problem she asks why it's not fixed yet and then gives you three recommendations as to how to fix it mm-hmm. so that's my that's that's my favorite captain or she just does it herself yeah exactly get out of the way i'll do it myself yeah no janeway's great but yeah i um i really enjoyed a lot of aspects of this uh the chakotay fighting for Torres uh, and the, and that moment after the exchange in the conference room when Janeway gives Chakotay that look she's like oh I guess you were right she is competent yeah I don't know if um, I don't know if you ever doubted Chakotay saying that she was com- that you know that Bellana wasn't competent so much as oh you were right she actually can control herself hmm yeah, that's right. And Janeway goes and figures it out for herself, like usual, mm-hmm. right? She hears yeah. Chakotay out. She thinks there's a problem with Bolana's uh, temperament and sort of ability to lead others. And so she goes to, to prod her and poke her a little bit. Do you think you're ready? There's four disciplinary hearings and one suspension. Tries to rile her up, get her upset, and see what mm-hmm. she's made out of. And that's I really enjoy that as well. Yeah, I did like when Janeway and Chakotay are squaring off and... What, you know, so one comment that is that I kind of wish the dialogue had been different, which was when uh, Jacote is talking about you know, like something, something my people, and her saying, "Well, see, that's your problem. They're not your people." I really wish that she had followed up with, "They're mine." Yeah. Um, but when he's saying, "Well, I'm not going to be your token Maki officer," and she just sort of like pauses and kind of looks at him different. Uh, I, I like that whole exchange and and the the acting mm-hmm. in it. I thought I thought it was really well done between the two of them. Yeah, when he's given good writing to go with, 
Robert Beltran plays a very good Chicote. Unfortunately, throughout the show, he's not always given the best writing. Yeah. But but I do like Chicote for the most part. What's up with how Bellana pronounces his name? Chocolate. Yeah, did you notice that too? She went yeah, completely she like, like Admiral Jenkins on him. <laughs> Chakote. Yeah. I don't know, maybe is that is that like the is that maybe how his people would pronounce it? I feel like we see his people in an episode, which is just, again, with the representation problems with his character. But I yeah. don't feel like it's said that way. The only other person I can think of outside the first season to call him that like that is Admiral Jenkins. <laughs> when he has a full face tattoo. <laughs> yeah, and, and I feel like um, he would identify himself that way yeah we have heard him say his own name and he doesn't pronounce it that way yeah that's fair maybe i don't know maybe she I mean, this is the second episode so maybe roxanne dawson just didn't know how to pronounce it yeah yeah given how tv shows and movies are filmed it's entirely possible that that was filmed before she had heard anyone else say his name right Likely as well, because part of the memory alpha for this episode as well is that large portions of the week that they were shooting this, they were also reshooting parts of Caretaker, because they weren't done. And oh, so geez. it very well could have been the first time she ever saw well, it. Well, Caretaker was put off schedule a bit when they had to recast Janeway partway through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who was it originally? Genevieve Bujold. Who? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe she is French-Canadian, maybe, or just French, and... Uh, uh, yeah. People may know her from um, Anne of a Thousand Days, where I think I know her from. So there is a video out there of some of the scenes that she shot, and she was not good. <laughs> she lacked a certain something. Yeah. There's also a lot of video of Kate Mulgrew at cons doing a a laughably terrible French accent as her. Yes, I have in fact I've seen Kate Mulgrew do that in person. <laughs> Seems a little rude. Kind of comes off that way, yeah. 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 But Kate Mulgrew is a woman of strong convictions. Uh. Or I guess I guess I should say she has a strong personality. Which typically makes for a good con guest. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. Searches at cons as well including myself and that's why. So what the heck is a Decion beam? <laughs> <laughs> is this like the polaric radiation from the, our next episode, Time and Again, where we're going to mention this thing once and we're never going to mention it again? I presume it's like just... Transwarp or a Blade of Armor or any other. Because this was a Technobabble episode. Oh, right? yeah. 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 There was a lot of chatting about... Mr. Tuvok, take the main deflector offline. Mr. Kim, reroute the port and starboard plasma flow to the main deflector. We can use it to generate a warp field. Deflectors offline. Initializing plasma flow. Release the warp particles. (laughs) Hey, man, the ablative armor was awesome. It was. And if they run out of energy, they can just use solar panels instead. Right. I, I, I would watch Voyager... You know, turning on the ablative armor just on loop, like on you know, <laughs> ten hours of Voyager putting on ablative armor, like in early TNG when Riker is always going shields up 
red alert. It's just ablative armor, red alert, yeah. twice an episode, every yeah, episode. Yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me of a. Did you see Lost in Space? The the movie. No, not the not the original show. I feel like a long time ago. Okay. So, in it, uh, Matt LeBlanc's character is the hotshot pilot, and they're on board the. Uh, I can't remember the name of the the ship they come across, but it's. Conveniently enough, it has to do with like a quantum bubble and, and time dilation. Um, and there's all these crazy alien spider bug things, and they're attacking him. He like turns on like combat mode on his suit because he's like the only military person on the on the ship. Everyone else is, is like a doctor or scientist or a kid. And he has like this like cool like armor layout thing, you know, 10, 15 years before. Iron Man did it with much better with uh, much better graphics. <laughs> okay, so Dekions appear, Dekion fields and Dekion particles appear one other time in Star Trek on the TNG episode Cause and Effect when they're stuck in a temporal causality loop. Okay, uh-huh. you know what? That's awesome. Yeah, that's right. some real continuity right there. Yeah, good job. Did Braga write that one too? Probably. <laughs> That's the one with Kelsey Grammer. Yes. <laughs> I always get the one with Kelsey Grammer confused with Yesterday's Enterprise. It was, in fact, written by Brandon Braga, yes. There we go. He hastily went back through his notes and went, uh... This one. I feel like Ben has a problem with Braga. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I actually... I have much more of a problem with Berman than I do with Braga. Uh, personally. Uh, I feel Bra- Bra- Braga was certainly burned out a bit especially towards the end of Enterprise, but I think Berman caused a far more of the issues that we we talk about on Star Trek than Braga did. That's fair. I think I, I don't like his life. voice. And he just seems like... <laughs> he just... It's it's mostly... Because this is the problem with like watching parts of a franchise that you don't like so much, you then try to figure out like what's the problem here. Mm-hmm. And so I watched a lot of Braga Enterprise interviews, and I just could not handle him talking <laughs> about oh, I can't, problems. I can't stand watching Braga Enterprise uh, interviews simply because he he puts himself down so much. Like he take he says that everything wrong was his fault, and he's a terrible person. It's just like I can't watch any more of this. He's too. It's too depressing. Yeah. But that's probably enough Braga talk. I could do this all day. (laughs) That's my Braga podcast. What's your problem, dude? Every Thursday. Speaking of Braga, have you watched uh, the Orville at all? Um, I started, and then I think I have a problem with Seth MacFarlane as well. That's fair. Uh, I would say that the Orville gets better. From the first two episodes, first couple episodes. Yeah, I heard that it definitely gets better, and it's filling. Yeah, and it's filling a specific niche, and so that's cool. I need to finish up watching uh, the first season of both Discovery and Orville, so I can have my two sides of my sci-fi buffet. <laughs> yeah, Discovery starts back up on Sunday. Whoa, so quick! I'm excited. Well, it was it wasn't a the it was just a mid-season break. Okay, I'm I'm so used to like you know, Sci-Fi Channel's original series uh, mid-season breaks where they're like, "All right, that's our mid-season point on season three. We'll see you in a year and a half <laughs> for the rest of Eureka." <laughs> yeah, well, it, once uh, once season one of 
Discovery ends, it will be another year and a half before we get season two. Dang, really? Yeah. That's a long time. I really hope that CBS is planning to like do other things on CBS All Access, otherwise they're just going to see a mass <laughs> exodus. You don't log in every week for the good fight? I can't say that I do. What are you talking about? That's a good fight. It's a I CBS all-access only spinoff of The Good Wife. Ah. That's all I, I know about to... it. I've never seen it. It's a show I have to scroll past to get to Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> good job, Christine Bransky. Good job. <laughs> Alright, so what else did you guys want to talk about and discuss in this episode? Oh, there is one thing I want to talk about that isn't necessarily directly related to this episode. But I do not like the provisional rank pins that the Maquis wear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. If we're integrating the Maquis fully into the Starfleet crew, then they shouldn't have an obvious thing on their collar that indicates that they're not the same. I also have no idea how to read them. There is that, too. Uh, they are much harder to read. Uh, I can usually see them when I'm watching it on the big screen, but the way it works is they... They have lines inside that indicate that are that are equivalent to the pips. Like Chicote has two gold diagonal lines and one black diagonal line to indicate he's a lieutenant commander. Ah. And Bolana starts the episode with one gold line and one black line to indicate Lieutenant Junior Grade, and when she's made the chief engineer she's she changes to full lieutenant. I feel like Tom Pear should have a provisional pen. There is that too. But no, he just has the full thing. But, like, I have a big problem with that whole thing. It's like, you, you keep, you, you make the big speech about how the, they are integrated fully into the crew, and then you give them yeah. something that, like, you see them immediately, oh, they're Maquis. Yeah, why not give them, uh, you know, like, different colored, like, uh, like, undershirts? Uh, well, that would also... Yeah, on top of that. Well, maybe don't have anything that makes them look other. No, no, I... I... Oh, I I got gotcha. you. That, that okay. was my point. Was like you know, you know let, let's just go whole hog. Like, you know, make them wear hats. And you can say, and and you could say, well, the they didn't all go to the academy, so they don't all deserve it or whatever. But captains have the authority to issue temporary or breveted breveted or temporary ranks. I mean, Picard made Wesley freaking Crusher a full ensign. <laughs> And Janeway takes and gives to Paris the whole time because she just forgets that those were actually Kim's pips, right? And just keeps giving them and taking them away from Paris the whole time. Janeway makes Paris a full lieutenant, busts him down to Ensign, and then makes him a lieutenant junior grade again and keeps Cam at a lowly Ensign. Yep. I'm pretty sure that Cam has a single black pip tattooed on the side of his neck. <laughs> <laughs> just, just forever. Just... Uh... But what you were talking about, how, you know, like, oh, they didn't go to the Academy, that made me think of the line when she and Chakotay are debating in her in her ready room. And the Starfleet officers on this ship have worked all their lives to earn their commissions. Well, you know, we can't just make the Maquis officers. We can't just put them in charge of departments because there are people on this crew who've worked their like worked all their lives to earn their commissions. And I'm like, you've made Tom Paris a full lieutenant. <laughs> To be fair, Paris did work and earn a commission before he got sent to prison and got it taken away. Yeah, I guess so did Chakotay, but, I mean, Bellana was working towards that. 
Yeah, well, she did, but she did drop out of the academy, so that's a whole other thing. Okay, yeah, and, and we get into that. It just it's it, it was it struck me as an odd dichotomy that it was you know like no 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 I can't just be handing out rank to these people. Yeah, I think this underlines one of the problems with having this sort of cool Maquis thing because it is sort of the linchpin between all the '90s tracks put together. If you sort of think about it, mm-hmm. and that's we don't. I don't quite understand exactly where everyone came from. Because it would seem that you have Maquis that leave because of really bad decisions by the Federation when it comes to the Cardassian border. You have Maquis who are leaving for a number of other reasons. You have Bajorans who are just in there because they're from they're Bajora the first time we see them in TNG mm-hmm. and then Bajoran later. And they have weird little ridges coming out of their nose, too. <laughs> Correct. And so I wonder, clearly there are people from other ships that became Maquis, and it's not just washouts from the Academy, right? Uh, yeah, or not even other ships, but from colonies, or you know, maybe they were... Our bases, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, you know, they, they come from all over. The way I see the Maquis is sort of um, like uh, the Spanish Civil War. Go on. Okay, so in the 30s, uh, there was a Spanish Civil War between the communists and the fascists. And from all over the world, people went to help fight them. George Orwell, actually, yeah, uh, was one of them. Um, and so that's the way I sort of see the Maquis, is like, there's a lot of Maquis from all over the place. Some of them are the colonists, some of them are... But some of them are simply people who sympathize with their cause, who decided, oh, I'm going to go fight the Cardassians with them. So, you know, like World War One, England or France, with Americans coming over, or speaking of France, the French Foreign Legion. But, yeah. yeah. I, I like, always thought the Maquis is a ragtag band of mercenaries and rebels. Yes. Well, that's, that's, that's where my Spanish Civil War analog comes from. There were entire... Uh, entire, uh, you know, corps or whatever you... Uh, I'm bad about knowing exactly how to name military things. But there were entire groups of soldiers who were just made up of people from various countries who came over to help the Spanish. Yeah, that makes me think of maybe, like, without the sort of jihad element, like the Mujahideen, um, uh, the Mujahideen mm. right? They were from many different countries, but all had a similar... Yeah, that's Guide another one. Principle. Yeah. Hmm. I think we cracked it. <laughs> well, hold on. Yay. <laughs> I still can't believe there's 30 of them on the ship. At least 32. Were they, like, were they sleeping like five to a bed on the Maquis ship or something? <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, it definitely then makes it more believable that they could overthrow Voyager. I mean, I was originally thinking there were like a dozen of them. It's like, nah. Yeah. Two box equal, you know, equal to like four men, and Harry Kim's good for at least half of one. So, <laughs> speaking of how many people are on the Valjean, oh, that's that's right, that's the name of the ship. Yes, something I hope you look for in every single episode was the second in command of the Valjean, my personal favorite character uh, that is not anywhere known is uh, Ayala. Occasionally a lieutenant, occasionally an ensign, occasionally in security, occasionally in science. He's always in the background, and he will really mess up a lot of people if they're doing those sparkle quizzes about who's been in the most episodes. Was he the Was he the random guy with Seska? Uh, no, I think he has 
dark hair, and I think that guy was more blonde. But he's in the background. He's the one that you don't know in the background on the bridge. Oh, was he the guy in blue that got thrown around? Could could possibly be. He's in every... He's a lieutenant junior grade. He's a lieutenant. He's in red. He's in yellow. Because I noticed at one point when Voyager gets, like, buffeted around... uh, when they were leaving, I think, at the at the end, when they were punching through, um, there was a guy in blue that, like, gets vaulted over a railing. Yes, I think that is the case, because he is in Parallax. So, just for every episode, Spot Ayala. He's my, he's my favorite, because it makes no sense. Was he... Sorry. Was that actor maybe, like, doing another job as well while he was there? Like, was he, like, Chakotay's stunt double or something? He was stunt double for several people. He's also... <laughs> He's also Satan's robot, so even in nice. episodes where even in episodes where you're on the holodeck, you can't get rid of. Him. Well, I'm thinking like the most common recurring character on the original series was Lieutenant Kyle because he was William Shatner's stunt double. Oh, I thought you were thinking of Siler from from Stargate SG One. I was also thinking of Siler and Stargate SG One, who was Richard Dean Anderson's stunt double. Yes, that would yeah. make sense. Yeah, yeah he is I'm stunt pretty... double for several people. And he's also, yeah, he's in, he's also credited as security guard, he's tactical, he's occasionally <laughs> uncredited, he's occasionally credited by, like, his first name, last name, yeah, he's all over the place. That reminds me of, um, my all-time favorite book is uh, Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, and there's a bit where uh, Randall Lawrence Waterhouse is, is talking to his grandmother before she passed, and he's like, Grandma, sometimes Granddad is in this picture in an army uniform, but sometimes in a navy uniform. And grandmother <laughs> says, "Oh yeah, no, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence was in both the army and the navy, and he wore whatever uniform suited him at the time, <laughs> because he was uh, he was a code breaker, and he was given a special commission to wear literally any uniform that let him get to wherever he needed to be most expedi- uh, expeditiously." Do you need to get on a cruiser? Then congratulations, you've been commissioned as a commander in the Navy. Just just put on your Navy uniform, get on the cruiser, and get to where you need to be, and then put on your Army uniform, or take off both and wear a suit, whatever it takes. Yeah, the uh, the one uh, stunt actress that I always try to look out for is Patricia Tallman, because she's in a bunch of TNG, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Yeah. And she uh, is probably best known, you wouldn't know her, Stuart, but she's be- probably best known uh, for... Oh. For playing uh, Lita Alexander on Babylon 5. See, the problem is you can't get a hold of those anymore, and so I don't want to spend $100 to try, but I really want to watch it. Right. Yeah, it's not. A, I don't think it's available for streaming anywhere. No. Yeah, God, even if it were, it would look, I mean, even worse <laughs> than... It, it really does, uh, because the... Well, it's kind of weird. Uh, the... Everything that does not involve CGI looks great because mm-hmm. they originally shot it on film in on uh, in sixteen nine. So like the DVD version of Babylon Five, everything that does not involve CGI looks great. But all the CGI effects were only ever rendered on uh, at you know four by three sixty hertz video. So they look terrible when re rendered into the sixteen nine. Man, you know there's some dedicated nerd out there who's you know, diligently recreating all of those CGI scenes. <laughs> we just need to track this we just need to track this person down. We need to get them to do I it mean, for Deep Space Nine and Voyager so we can have Blu-ray releases. I'm surprised it hasn't been done already. I mean just 
like computer power being what it is today. There are actually several scenes from Deep Space Nine that random people have t- done into CGI as like a proof of concept. Uh, yeah, I mean, just like home computer power being what it is today. You just turn some of your graphics cards away from mining bitcoins and towards you know recreating DS9 and glorious 4K CGI and you know come on. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, you know the name Ayala like rung a bell because I'm sure I'm sure they like talk about him sometimes on the show. Yeah, but, occasionally he is named. But like. That was not... I had never noticed that, that he's in so many episodes. It absolutely started because I got someone very, very upset because they could not think of the last Sparkle Quiz name. And I said Ayala. And they got very... (laughs) That's not a real character. He's named. It's real. And so, for some reason, I always try to spot him in the background. It's like the number 47. Mm Mm-hmm. Just look for him in the background. Yeah. Well, I think... We've covered most everything at this point. And some stuff that wasn't even in the episode. Oh, so the guy who uh, argued with Seska for overthrowing Janeway was Crewman Jarvin. Like I said, right oh, yes. he does it at number four. Who could forget? And he does have dark hair, by the way. And he has the shiftiest eyes ever in his memory <laughs> alpha picture. <laughs> well, I mean, every time we saw him on screen, he looked pretty shifty. And he's sitting next to Seska, so that's saying something. This is true. I don't we, know. Seska is like the Maki Tom pair. She just, you know, she just goes at everything at full warp. So it's just like, you know, you watch over the ship. Do you? Do you? Like, I, I can just imagine at some point, like Seska passing Jamie in the hall and just being like, "We're gonna throw you." What was that? None. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as so Seska was wearing blue, and according to Martha Hackett, the actress who played Seska, it's because the costume department gave her the wrong outfit for this episode. <laughs> Oh, yeah, sure. Blame it on the costume. Because she's actually on the bridge in the engineering station. Oh, yeah. On this episode? Yeah. When? Because the one time that I recall seeing her... She calls out when something is getting destroyed or down to whatever percent or something. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Because she was also in the engineering department when Bellana, when when Carrie was telling Bellana, oh, hey, you're also coming to this meeting. Susky gets around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, apparently, everybody wears tons of different colors on Voyager. There's just a lot of duty rotations. That's what you gotta do when you're in the Delta Quadrant, I guess. My favorite, uh, my favorite random crew person on Voyager, though, has to be the King of Jordan. Yes. Really? Yes. Well, he so wasn't like... the King of Jordan when he was on no, Voyager. Yeah. The prince. But yeah, he okay, is so at a... some point. It's a non-speaking role because he wasn't a member of the Screen Actors Guild. But there is a scene where he is seen uh, talking to Harry Kim because he is a huge Star Trek fan and happened to be in Hollywood and asked if he could be on Voyager. And, I mean, how do you say no to a crown prince? Yeah. Cool. We'll have to look out for that. Yeah. He's in blue. He is in blue. (laughs) (laughs) They said, hey, Seska doesn't wear this anymore. Put this on. (laughs) Your Highness. Right. <laughs> I doubt that's what happened because I know the the female jumpsuits <laughs> and the male jumpsuits are made out of different material. Wait, really? Yeah, the female jumpsuits are stretchy. Okay, interesting. Can't wait till those jumpsuits are gone. <laughs> I, sorry to tell you, but on Voyager they never go away. No, I know. I just mean like like 
generally like in like the Star Trek timeline where <laughs> it's like the, the jumpsuits uh, like the worst decision. I mean, no, no, second worst. The worst has got to be Enterprise. I did not like the Enterprise uniforms. The gray and black is actually still a jumpsuit. Only uh they only ever wear jackets occasionally. like for the most part, the only people who wear jackets are Cisco and Picard. Uh, every once in a while, when the script calls for them to open their open their uniform, they'll suddenly yeah. be wearing a jacket instead of a jumpsuit. Okay. It just okay, fine. It's just a better looking jumpsuit. Oh, I'll give you that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, original series had some pretty great uniforms. I my best favorite iteration of the original series are the way they looked in Star Trek Beyond. Hmm. Yeah, but okay. How the heck did like. Where was the uniform hiding in the escape pod in Star Trek? It puts them on. The computer puts it on them, obviously. That's weird and creepy. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's a special Kelvin pod thing. Ugh. They're never called Kelvin pods ever again. They're just called escape pods. They're only called Kelvin pods because... I know why they're called Kelvin pods. (laughs) Oh, so yeah, Ben, what do you think of Quentin Tarantino doing a Star Trek movie? Um, that sounds great slash terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of uh, how slash I great. <laughs> slash great. Slash perhaps great. Yeah. Okay, okay, so. I'm all for, I am all for stretching what it means to be Star Trek, because I feel like as a franchise, it's pretty indestructible. And so if you want to go take a little jaunt, that's fine. If you want to bring Chris Helmsworth back and do a time travel one to wrap up that that sort of alternate universe, that's fine, too. Well, Patrick Stewart Dude, says he, said he wants to be in it. See, now that's the good part. That would be okay for me. <laughs> so, yeah. I agree with you that Star Trek is mostly indestructible. If the franchise survived Star Trek Nemesis, it can survive pretty much anything. <laughs> if it survived a solid third of the movies that it made. So, it's okay. <laughs> we can say it here first. We're all family. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not entirely sure that Quentin Tarantino and Star Trek are two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> you like chocolate? You like french fries? You don't like chocolate french fries? I mean, I've never tried chocolate french fries, so well, I'll give them the benefit of that. 2020. It's fine. Well, uh, I know that Wendy's fries in a Wendy's Frosty is a culinary delicacy that everyone you know needs to needs to have in their life. As often as possible, really, because it, <laughs> it's a genuine treat. I've actually never had a Frosty in my life. Have you ever had Yoohoo? Yes. It's like frozen Yoohoo. <laughs> so it's that same, not quite, it, it's that same chocolatey flavor. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it's not chocolate, it's chocolatey. Um, yeah. Which I mean, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with. I mean, you know, I mean, you know that my my favorite candy in the world, next to six foots, obviously, is like the cheapest, crappiest, um, like rice filled chocolate that you can get. And I like a, do not a, understand you at all. At like a pharmacy, or like probably like uh, like from some kid who's trying to raise money for school, and they always have those, those, those crappy chocolate bars. Yeah, just give me all of like the the rice crispy knockoffs. The the, the the crunch knockoffs, rather, yeah, yeah. Give me that, give me that cheap chocolatey crap with the with the rice in it. That that that's uh, that's my jam. Okay, that's six months. 
I would like a fan at Delta Podcast uh, Twitter handle to tell us how much of this episode was spent talking about Parallax and <laughs> how much of this episode was on things that we enjoy that aren't Parallax. That's what I would like. That's to. par for the course, really. Yeah, that, that that's pretty average for, for that. And I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that's as good a place as any to, to, to start signing off. Well, yeah, and I think uh, I think Ben gave us a nice segue. Uh, if you do want to talk to us on Twitter, please do. We love interaction. We are at Delta Flyer Pod. If you want to send us an email, we are Delta Flyer Pod at gmail.com. Uh, we do have a website. That's DeltaFlyerPod.com. And we also have a Facebook page, which is Delta Flyer Podcast, also at, or also just at Delta Flyer Pod. And uh, if you like this show, and want to hear us talk, not actually talk about another sci-fi show, we have another show called Stargate Weekly, which is available at StargateWeekly.com. Uh, yeah, uh, based on when we're recording this episode and when this episode will hit your podcast player of choice, uh, Stargate Weekly Season 1 is all out and ready to be downloaded and consumed at your leisure, and Season 2 is on its way. So, if you want to talk to me personally, I am at Tyrannicus on Twitter. I am at Gamicus on Twitter, and Ben? Uh, yeah, I am uh, Benji, B-E-N-J-I, uh, Nielsen, on Twitter, and come try it, friends. Thanks for having me tonight. Oh, nice. Crossing the streams there. Well done. Deep cut. Deep cut. <laughs> <laughs>